Section 4 of Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natter. The World's Story, Volume 11. Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 4. Jacques Cartier at Quebec, 1535, by John Fiske. There enters now upon the scene a man of whose personality we have a much more distinct conception than we have of Verrazzano. As that accomplished Italian is one of chief glories of the town of Dieppe, so the Breton seaport of Saint-Malo is famous for its native citizen Jacques Cartier. His portrait hangs in the town hall. Unfortunately, its authenticity is not above question, but if it is not surely a true likeness, it deserves to be. It well expresses the earnestness and courage, the refinement and keen intelligence of the great Breton mariner. He had roamed the seas for many years, and had won, and doubtless earned, from Spanish mouths the epithets of corsar and pirate, when at the age of three and forty he was selected by Philippe de Chabot, admiral of france to carry on the work of denis and aubert and verrazzano and to bring fresh tidings of the mysterious square gulf of sylvanus on the twentieth of april fifteen thirty four cartier sailed from saint malo with two small craft carrying sixty-one men and made straight for the coast of labrador just north of the strait of belle isle a region already quite familiar to breton and norman fishermen Passing through the straits, he skirted the inner coast of Newfoundland, southward as far as Cape Ray, whence he crossed to Prince Edward Island and turned his prows to the north. The oppressive heat of the American July is commemorated in the name which Cartier gave to the Bay of Chaleur. A little farther on, at Gasp, he set up a cross, and with the usual ceremonies took possession of the country in the name of Francis I. Thence he crossed to the eastern end of Anticosti, and followed the north shore of that island nearly to its western point, when he headed about, and passing through Belle-Isle, made straight for France, carrying with him a couple of Indians whom he had kidnapped, young warriors from far up the St. Lawrence, who had come down to the sea to catch mackerel in hemp nets. With this voyage of reconnaissance, the shadowy square gulf of Sylvanus at once became clothed with reality. Enough interest was aroused in France to seem to justify another undertaking, and in May 1535 the gallant Cartier set forth once more with three small ships and 110 men. Late in July he passed through the Strait of Belle-Isle, and on the 10th of August, a day sacred to the martyred St. Lawrence, he gave that name to a small bay on the mainland north of Anticosti. Whales were spouting all around his course as he passed the western point of the island and ploughed into the broad expanse of salt water that seemed to open before him the prospect of a short passage to the Indian Ocean. Day by day, however, the water grew fresher, and by the September morning, when he reached the mouth of the Saguenay, our explorer was reluctantly convinced that he was not in a strait of the ocean, but in one of the mightiest rivers of the earth. To these newcomers from the old world, each day must have presented as impressive spectacle. For except the Amazon and the Orinoco, it may be doubted if there be any river which gives one such an overwhelming sense of power and majesty as the St. Lawrence. Certainly the Mississippi seems very tame in comparison. 
as the frenchmen inquired the names of the villages along the banks a reply which they commonly received from their two indian guides was the word canada which is simply a mohawk word for village hence cartier naturally got the impression that canada was the name of the river or of the country through which it flowed and from these beginnings its meaning has been gradually expanded until it has come to cover half of a huge continent presently on arriving at the site of quebec cartier found there a village named stadacona with a chieftain called donnacona painted and bedizened warriors and squaws came trooping to the water's edge or paddling out in canoes to meet the astounding spectacle of the white-winged floating castles and their pale-faced and bearded people in the two kidnapped interpreters the men of stadacona quickly recognized their kinsmen strings of beads were passed about dusky figures leaped and danced and doleful yells of welcome resounded through the forest was this the principal town of the country no it was not the town in question was many miles upstream a great town and its name was hochelaga but it would be rash for the bearded visitors to attempt to go thither for they would be blinded with falling snow and their ships would be caught between ice floes this ironical solicitude for the safety of the strangers has the genuine indian smack the real motive underlying it was doubtless protection to home industry why should the people at hochelaga get a part of the beads and red ribbons when there were no more than enough for the people at stadacona recourse was had to the supernatural or infernal powers on a fine autumn morning a canoe came down the river carrying three scowling devils clad in dogskins with inky black faces surmounted by long antlers as they passed the ships they paddled shorewards prophesying in a dismal monotone until as the canoe touched the beach all three fell flat upon their faces thereupon forth issued from the woods donnacona's feathered braves and in an ecstasy of yelps and groans seized the fallen demons and carried them out of sight behind the canopy of leaves whence for an hour or so their rash and mutual hubbub fell upon the ears of the frenchmen at last the two young interpreters crawled out from the thicket and danced about the shore with agonizing cries and gestures of lively terror until cartier from his quarter-deck called out to know what was the trouble it was a message they said from the mighty deity kudwani warning the visitors not to venture upon the dangerous journey to hochelaga inasmuch as black ruin would surely overtake them the frenchman's reply was couched in language disrespectful to kudani and the principle of free trade in trinkets prevailed with a forty-ton pinnace and two boats carrying fifty men cartier kept on up the river leaving his ships well guarded in a snug harbour within the mouth of the stream now known as the st charles a cheerful voyage of a fortnight brought the little part to hochelaga where they landed on a crisp october morning there came forth to meet them in the magniloquent phrase of the old narrator one of the principal lords of the said city with a large company of retainers for thus did their european eyes interpret the group of clansmen by whom they were welcomed a huge bonfire was soon blazing and crackling and indian tongues loosened by its genial warmth poured forth floods of eloquence until presently the whole company took up its march into the great city of Oshelaga. a sketch of this rustic stronghold was published in fifteen fifty six in ramusio's collection of voyages 
The name of the draftsman has not come down to us, but it was apparently drawn from memory by someone in, of Cartier's party, for while it does not answer in all the detail to Cartier's description, it is a most characteristic and unmistakable Iroquois town. It was circular in shape. The central portion consisted of about fifty long wigwams, about one hundred and fifty feet in length by fifty in breadth, framed of saplings tightly boarded in with sheets of bark. Through the middle of each wigwam ran a passageway, with stone fireplaces at intervals coming under openings in the high bark roof, whereby some of the smoke might escape. Kettles of baked clay hung over most of the fires and the smoky atmosphere was redolent of simmering messes of corn and beans and fowl, or, if it were a gala day, of boiled dog, while the fumes of tobacco were omnipresent. On either side were the rows of shelves or benches covered with furs, which served as beds, while here and there, overlooking sheaves of stone arrows and scattered tomahawks, there dangled flint knives and red clay pipes and dry human scalps. These spacious wigwams were arranged about a large central square, and outside of them a considerable interval or boulevard intervened between habitations and wall. Such a town might have held a population of from 2,500 to 3,000 souls, but the actual number was apt to fall short of the capacity. The town walls ingeniously constructed of three concentric rows of stout saplings, the middle row stood erect in the ground, rising to a height of twelve or fifteen feet, and the two outer rows planted at a distance of five or six feet on either side of it were inclined so as to make a two-sided tent-shaped structure. The three rows of saplings met at the top, and were tightly lashed to a horizontal ridge-pole, while at the bottom, and again about halfway up, they were connected by diagonal cross-braces, after the herring-bone pattern thus securing great strength and stability. Around the inside of this stout wall, and near the top, ran a gallery accessible by short ladders, and upon the gallery our explorers observed piles of stones, ready to be hurled at an approaching foe. Outside, in all directions, stretched rugged half-cleared fields, clad in the brown remnant of last summer's corn crop, and dotted here and there with yellow pumpkins. The arrival of the white strangers was the cause of wild excitement among the bark cabins and in the open square of Hoshelaga. Their demeanor was so courteous and friendly that men, women, and children allowed curiosity to prevail over fear. They flocked about the Frenchmen and felt of their steel weapons and stroked their beards. Sick Indians came up to be touched and cured, trinkets were handed about, polite speeches were made, and at length, amid a loud fanfare of trumpets, the white men took their leave. Before they embarked, the Indians escorted them to the summit of the neighboring hill, which Cartier named Mont-Royal, a name which, as Mont-Royal, still remains attached to the hill and to the noble city at its foot. It was getting late in the season to make further explorations in this wild and unknown country, and upon returning to Stadacona, the Frenchmen went into winter quarters. There they suffered from such intensity of cold as the shores of the English Channel never witnessed, and presently scurvy broke out with such virulence that scarcely a dozen of the whole company were left well enough to take care of the rest. In vain were prayers and litanies and genuflections in the snow. 
the heavenly powers were as obdurate as when Cassim Baba forgot the talismanic word that opened the robber's cave. But presently Cartier learned from an Indian that a decoction of the leaves of a certain evergreen tree was an infallible cure for scurvy. The experiment was tried, with results that would have gladdened Bishop Berkeley had he known them when he wrote his famous treatise on the virtues of tar-water. Whether the tree was spruce, or pine, or balsam fir is matter of doubt, but we are told that Cartier's men showed such avidity that within a week they had boiled all the foliage of a tree as big as a full-grown oak, and had quaffed the aromatic decoction, whereupon their cruel distemper was quickly healed. The ranks had been so thinned by death that Cartier was obliged to leave one of his ships behind. Further exploration must be postponed. It was the common experience. A single season of struggle with the savage continent made it necessary to return to Europe for fresh resources. So it was for Cartier. The midsummer of 1536 saw him once more safe within the walls of Saint-Malo, and confident that one more expedition would reveal some at least of the wonders which he had heard of, comprising all sorts of things, from gold and diamonds to unipeds. As we are confronted again and again with these resplendent dreams of the early voyagers to America, we are reminded not only that the wish is farther to the thought, but also that the stolid-looking red man is the most facetious of mortals, and in his opinion the most delightful kind of facetiousness, the genuine epicure's brand of humour, consists in what English slang calls stuffing, or filling a victim's head with all manners of false information. End of section 4. This recording is in the public domain.